you have to share with us this morning through Pastor Jesse, God. And I pray that um, this would just be a sweet time of fellowship together um, around your table as your family and your church, God. In your name, amen. Good morning. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> hey, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of these guys will uh, love to hand you one. If you don't own one, uh, you can take this one with you. Turn to Mark. <clears throat> Gospel of Mark chapter 3. Um, if I have not met you yet, my name is Jesse, and I'm part of the team here. I have been gone for the last three weeks. I don't know if anyone ever noticed, but uh, you're clapping for that. All right. All right. Um, ushers, if you could please remove this individual from the front. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I was in Reading uh, for uh, almost a week, spent some time uh, with uh, some other pastors up there. We actually uh, have built a really great relationship with a church there called Pathway. Uh, and the pastor there and, and I have built a really good uh, friendship. And, and so that was great. And then I was home for a day and then turned around and flew to Hawaii with my family. First vacation in like three years as a family together. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii, but it's horrible. It's just a horrible place. <laughs> and uh, way too much sun and sand and relaxation. And then I was home for a, a, another day, and then we turned around and uh, drove to Yosemite and uh, performed a wedding for a couple in our church in Yosemite. And I don't know if you've ever been to Yosemite. That's another horrible place to go. Uh, would recommend that you probably avoid such places as Hawaii and Yosemite, okay? Uh, so good to be back. Uh, hopefully, I, I still remember how to communicate uh, this morning, and I, I, I will execute the message uh, uh, real good. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a um, couple things before we dive in. Number one, if you are visiting in the front of the seat is a card tells, a, tells you all about us. Go to the info booth with that card. We have a gift for you. We'd love to give you. And, and then uh, download our app. It's got all the information on there. It's, it's, uh, for, as, as an example, Vacation Bible School is coming up. We do need uh, volunteers for that. And so if you want to sign up for that, you can do that on the app. You can do that online. And then we're looking for a preschool teacher for ages three through five. So that's something if, if uh, you're available, we would love to have you. And then June 5th, next week, in between services, we're doing a ministry fair. So basically all of our ministries, all the things that we do as a church, all the things that are going on are kind of be are going to be next door uh, between services with snacks. We'd love for you to get plugged in. Love for you to to find a place to serve or find a ministry to be involved in. So want to uh, encourage you to check those things out. Okay, Mark chapter three. Let me give a quick little introduction. This morning's title is a new community, a new uh, community, or maybe another way to say it would be a new family. Another way I could tag the message is insiders and outsiders. So let me just ask a question. If you've ever felt uh, like you have not been connected or if you've ever felt on the outside of a particular group, uh, whether maybe that might be you this morning. You may actually feel, hey, I'm here, uh, but I, I, I don't really feel like I belong. I don't know if I belong. Uh, and so Jesus is going to kind of answer that question this morning. I want to share with you a story. It's kind of a sad story, but it's, it's, it's what it is. When I was uh, probably, I think it was first grade, first, second grade, uh, I was on the outside of, of all the other kids. I, I really didn't have a whole lot of friends when I was younger, uh, when I was a little kid. In fact, I distinctly remember taking my Star Wars figurines to school, which dates me a little bit. And 
I remember I had all of them, man. I had like I wish I still had them because they're worth money today. But I would take them to school and and I would trade them to other kids to to try to feel like you know to get connected with them. And I was taken advantage of because of that. So I I, I literally remember trading in Yoda for like a headless Han Solo, and uh, and I don't you know just that's how it was. And then later, no, 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 they hated me, and um, then. As I progressed, I, I was kind of like, I was diagnosed with, with uh, basically a learning disability, and I had to take uh, a, a whole other class away from all of the other kids. And so I was, I was in that class, you know, with a couple other kids, and, and they were trying to get me dialed in uh, and all of that. I was held back in first grade, which I didn't know you could do. Apparently, you could fail first grade. I did. And so... Um, I was supposed to graduate with, with you, Mr. Wicks. Do you remember that? I don't, you probably don't remember that. but and So long story short, I finally, I finally after, uh, after being in that class, they reintroduced me in, I think it was around third grade, they reintroduced me to the rest of the kids. This sounds like a stray dog or something, you know. They reintroduced me into society. And, so I, I, and then upon being in that classroom, they didn't have any desks. And so I had to sit off to the side until they got another desk. And it was right around Christmas time, and I remember this distinctly because the, the table they sat me at was the table where all of the kids made their gingerbread houses. So I was sitting at the table with all these gingerbread houses, and uh, I was really bored, and, <laughs> and, and I ate them. I ate the gingerbread. <laughs> <clears throat> Which only helped establish me back into society with the other kids. <laughs> so you fast forward a little bit, and then... Uh, somewhere around ninth grade, things kind of changed for me, and uh, I, I, I developed a, a love for football and developed a love for uh, sports and, and had some athletic ability. And then because of that, I was actually started to kind of be more accepted with other kids in the school, which was great. And in fact, one of the main guys that really poured into me and mentored me was Coach Bob Schaefer. And he, he man, he was like a father figure to me. And, and things just changed. But I still wasn't totally on the inside. I didn't party like all the other kids did. That's not what I was into. <clears throat> and I, I, it still felt like something was missing. And I wasn't totally on uh, the, the inside, if you will. And it wasn't really until I, I really realized who Jesus was and what the church is and, and what God desires for family and community that I really started to feel like I belong. So let me just ask that question for you. Have you ever felt like you've been on the outside? Have you ever felt rejected, dejected? Have you ever felt like maybe you didn't have a family? Have you ever felt maybe your family doesn't understand you, uh, that you don't get along maybe at Christmas time, that it's not all that great? Well, in this particular text, Jesus is going to go to a mountain. He's going to call his disciples to himself. And I want you to see something that's really quite incredible because Jesus' plan here is to get these men to himself, to train them, that they then would take on the mission of sharing the gospel with the rest of the world. He's literally putting 12 men in charge of changing the world. And what's even more interesting, which you lose within this particular passage, because Mark moves really fast. The book is rapid. Uh, I like to say it's written a lot like a comic book. Uh, This morning, you're going to see four scenes. And the first scene, he goes to the mountain, and he calls these men to himself. And he establishes a new community, a new family. 
And like I said, as it moves quickly, what's really interesting is that by the time we actually are in this passage, Jesus has done, he, he, he has been uh, in his public ministry for about a year and a half. Remember, he's crucified at the age of 33, started the public ministry at age 30. Now, he literally, and I think this is lost on us sometimes. We don't realize this. He, he literally only spends a year and a half with these men by the time he gets to this place. A year and a half of training, and then he ascends to the Father, and he puts them in charge of changing the world. This is quite incredible. So if you have the ability this morning, and if you have the desire to do so, would you stand in worship with me as we read from this particular passage? <clears throat> Chapter 3. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Sons of Thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Lord, this is your word. We trust to be true to us this morning. In Jesus' name, the church said, you may be seated. Um, now remember, from the previous week that Caleb shared, Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee sits roughly 682 feet below sea level. This is a place that is uh, filled with a lot of people. It's, it's a place of diversity. It's a place of, a place of ethnic diversity. And Jesus is being pressed in around the crowds. Or the crowds are pressing in around him. He is reaching the peak of his popularity at this moment. His public ministry has been going on, as I mentioned, for about a year and a half. And then there's a pivoting point. The text literally tells us that he went up on the mountain. He now ascends to the top of a hill. From this point forward, the emphasis will not be so much on Jesus' public ministry and his popularity with the crowds and the masses, as much as it will focus even more so on his relationship with the 12. He starts to develop these men. He climbs what is believed to be the Horns of Hatton. It's an extinct volcano in uh, Jerusalem. It, maybe it was there, maybe it was some other hills. We're not exactly sure, but the point being is he went to a mountain. The emphasis here on going to the mountain is separation. It's to be set aside, to remove himself again from the popularity of the crowds, again from people, to a place of privacy, to a place where he can minister to these men. We're actually told in Luke that before his disciples come to him, those whom he desires, it says, he literally spends an entire evening in prayer to select these 12 men. Jesus wrestles with God the Father on this hill to ask the Father, who do you want me to pass the mantle on to? Who would you have me train? Who do you want to be set apart? Upon the conclusion of the prayer, he calls these 12 specific men to himself. 
The 12 is important. That number is important. The reason it's important is because what Jesus is doing and what he's letting anybody know who's a Jewish reader know, he's replacing the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the community that was supposed to glorify God, the people who were supposed to follow after God, they have not. They've rejected him. So now Jesus takes this once nation that he has chosen to create now a new royal priesthood, a new nation, a new family, a new community. So 12 is important. Now we know that it wasn't only 12. In fact, later we'll see, uh, or, or you would see in Luke, he chooses 72 others, sends them out two by two. But these specific men are listed in this list. These 12, they're important. In fact, in verse 14, the word appointed apostles is used. It's an important word because it literally means to create. It's God creating as if he did in the book of Genesis when he created the heavens and he created the earth. He is creating something brand new. He's pivoted from the crowds. He's now on the hill and he chooses these 12 men. For what purpose? The same purposes for you and I. The same reasons that God has selected and desired us. The first thing that's listed is that they would be with him on that hill. This is language of presence. This is language of relationship, language of intentionality that Jesus would be ministering and loving and creating this new family to be intimate with him, to know him. He wants his followers to know him. He wants you to know him. He wants me to know him. He wants to spend time with these men. The Apostle Paul knew this as he shared in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. When he's speaking of death, he actually says about dying, it is far better to be with Christ. This is the language that is used for those who understand the relationship that we have with God, that we desire to be with him at all costs, at all times, and in all places. And the second thing he lists is that they would follow him. Brad Beers, when he preached, did an incredible job sharing with you that Jesus is this rabbi, this teacher, that we don't want to miss a moment with him. We don't want to miss time with him, that we would be, that they would be his apostles. There's a present reality of being with him. That's a here and a now. And then there is a future to this, a future reality that we would be with him on the mountain, that we'd be with him in presence, but then we would be sent out. That's the future. Always, and in all places, and in all times, it's important for us to first be with Jesus, live with Jesus, travel with Jesus, converse with Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, that always will proceed preaching about Jesus. We must spend time with the Lord, be with God, in relationship with him, and for this reason, to proclaim the goodness of who Jesus is. That is what they're going to be trained to do. That is what this new family is to be all about. And God gives them, these 12 men, authority. This is the new family of God. Scene one, top of the hill. Jesus in relationship with these 12 individuals. This is, so you know, a new Israel in embryo as one author states. Something new is being born in this place. Of which later Peter will say, we are a, cho a chosen priesthood. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation for his possession. 
There's only two people that Jesus sees. This has been a reminder for me in the last few weeks uh, being away, that, that God the Father only sees two families, two nations, or you could say two individuals. He either sees Adam or those who are in Adam, those who are in sin, or he sees those who are in Christ. Jesus on this mountain is inviting these men to be in Christ, to be used, to proclaim the gospel, and to change the world. And they'll be trained to do it in less than two years. Imagine yourself in this situation. Imagine if you knew, if you were one of these men sitting on this mountain, that that you were going to be equipped in a year and a half to go change the world. All of us, I think, would run. But now we've got to talk about this new family. I mean, the names are listed. They're they're there for a reason. The one thing that I find really, really interesting, as well as very, very beautiful, is that when Jesus takes these men to the mountain, one of the things he does is he gives them new names, new identities. He he takes away the, the, the name that their fathers have given them, and he renames them, and there's meaning to them. The first of which, which he's listed first in every list, Peter. You remember Peter, right? We all remember this guy. He's impulsive. He acts far before he thinks. He cuts a dude's ear off at one point in Scripture. He denies Jesus. You would think, surely this man cannot and will not be used for the gospel, and yet we know he becomes one of the prominent leaders. He has a major role in leadership amongst these men. He's listed first, and Jesus renames him what? The rock. That's irony. But yet that is what Jesus does, showing us that, that Jesus sees something in people, potential in people, that oftentimes we miss and overlook. In addition to this list, there's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. That's their name. These guys are a little bit stormy when they get together, right? I imagine these two guys are the the brothers in the car who are punching each other and mom and dad's telling them to stop, right? At one point in time, they see a group of men not following Jesus and rejecting Jesus. Their response to these sons of thunder Let us strike them down with fire, Lord. That's their gospel preaching. They're not receiving you, Jesus. Would you allow us to tell fire to come from heaven and consume them? That's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. You have Alphaeus, literally means the lesser. You have Andrew, his Greek name means manly. Maybe he's a little bit of a chauvinist, we don't know. But then you have two names by contrast, two names in this new family that are at the polar opposites of each other. That first man is Simon the Zealot. Maybe it's lost on you unless you do a little bit of studying and you do a little bit of research and you find out that Zealots were a Jewish sect of individuals who hated the Roman Empire. They were bent, politically bent on taking Rome back, getting rid of their, their bondage to Rome. They wanted to overthrow Roman control. In fact, it was said of some of these zealots that they literally kept daggers inside of their cloaks and that when a passing by Roman soldier, if he was not paying attention, they would quickly kill him, take him out. This is, this is Simon. 
This is the zealot. He, he's your political radical. He's your radical Democrat or your radical Republican. He is the guy who's all red or all blue, but that's his stance. He is anti-Romans. Why is this so interesting? Well, one, it shows that Jesus can save just about anybody, even Democrats. Hey, it's true. It's 100% true. He can save really weird Republicans too. Now, the anti-Roman, the anti-American, whatever you may want to call him, the anti-nation kind of guy then is added to this. Who, above all people, but Matthew, a tax collector. Why is this so radical, so polarizing? One hates, literally hates Romans. The other one is putting money in the Romans' pockets. And what does Jesus do? Come to the mountain with me, guys. Let's create a new family. You know, Jesus is in the business of taking people from opposite spectrums with different political views, with different ideologies, different family backgrounds, bringing them into a room such as this, saving their souls from their own sins and destruction and creating a new nation and a new family that would never hang out with one another unless it was for the gospel. Some of you have some really weird ideas. Some of you are conspiracy theorists. Some of you still think the earth is flat. You know who you are. Shame on you. And Jesus still brings this ragtag, block-headed, very ordinary men on the hill to create a new family. An unordinary group Four fishermen, a hated tax collector, a known zealot, six of them whom we know almost nothing about, two emotional brothers, maybe a chauvinistic individual. These are the least likely men you would choose to change the world. Not one preacher, not one expert in scripture, not one religious person out of the the bunch. These men were not educated, and it's most likely they didn't know how to read. Back to my little third grade self. But he didn't choose these men because of their status. He didn't choose them because of how special they were or how great they were. He did not use his popularity to bring in amongst himself some man, some person from society who was either rich or well-known. No, 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 no. He chooses obscure men to show his power and his might through humility. This is the family of God. It is imperfect. It is messy. I mean, we know it's messy. How do we know it's messy? Well, well, first of all, the Gospels tell us it's messy. But in the end of this list, always listed last, always listed as the betrayer, is Judas. Jesus still loves Judas. He still serves Judas. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Judas served well for a time. There was evidence of his loyalty. He served as the treasurer, but his motives were wrong. And I think that we can take something away from this. I think that's that reality that when you're part of a church family, you can at times 
and well at times be hurt by people in the church. One author says, if you live long enough and serve long enough, you will be disappointed by people whom you love and who you thought loved you. You would let them guard your back, believing they would take a bullet for you, only to discover the knife in your back has their handprints on it. But friends, we don't leave the family of God and we don't leave the church for a few Judases in the room. We know that this relationship with other people, this family has the ability to hurt each other. And it saddens me to say that, that oftentimes inside of the church, we do a tremendous job hurting one another, sinning against one another, gossiping against one another. May that not be so, for we are the children in the family of God. Scene one. Boom, Jesus is on the mountain. He has pivoted from Galilee to this hill to pour into these men. Scene two, we read it together. He, is, he descends down the mountain. He returns home. In this scene, as he returns home, the crowds have returned. His popularity, again, is showing itself. The crowds are so pressed around him, they are so gathered around him, it says in verse 20, that he can't even eat. He is a workaholic at this point, it seems. He is ministering. He is loving. He's doing everything he can to pour into these people, and they are just mushing around him, squishing him. His family sees it, and what is their response? They went to seize him, it says. That word seize, so you know, it occurs several other times in Mark, and the only other times it's used is literally for the, for the word to arrest. They want to arrest Jesus. They want to confine Jesus. They want to put him back in the house and shut the door. Why? Why do they want to do this? Because they believe, it says it right here, what did they say of this Messiah? He's crazy. He's lost his marbles. Literally what they're saying is he, he's gone too far. Right? If, if Jesus were alive today, his family would say, he has ADHD. He needs to be medicated. We got to give him some Prozac. This guy is clearly out of his mind. And in a culture of shame and honor, which is the Jewish culture, from the family perspective, they probably are more worried about the family name. Jesus is going to give our family a bad name. Jesus is a religious fanatic. He's hurting the family name. He's a danger to himself. He has to be stopped. We've got to put this man in a straitjacket and in a padded cell. Get this guy medicated. There's something off. Now, here's, here's the encouragement and the discouragement. When you follow Jesus and you go to the mountain, and when you descend and you come home and you start telling people of your love and your passion, of how great and how glorious Jesus is, your family may say the same thing about you. You're nuts. You're a fanatic. In our culture today, the term that would probably be used for Jesus, hey, Jesus, you've got to deconstruct your faith. Look back at all the things that are in your faith and take it apart. That's the cultural mantra today. The cultural mantra is for young people to start to deconstruct their faith, take it apart and reject it. Why? Well, because of church hurt, because of leadership hurt, for all kinds of reasons. But my friends, we are never to deconstruct our faith. 
The Bible calls us to build our faith, to put more faith in Christ. Jesus doesn't need medication. He is not unbalanced. He is serving his Father. He is doing it well. He is glorifying God. But we must understand, friends, that as we make the stance to worship this Jesus and to follow this Jesus, people are going to call us nuts. Are you okay with that? You better be. (laughs) Someone's going to tell you to get on some meds. Now, if that wasn't enough, right? Scene one, he's on the mountain. He's building a new family. The 12 tribes are being replaced by 12 men that we're going to be a part of. A new family, a new community. Jesus descends in scene two. There his family is. You're nuts, Jesus. And then scene three. Scene three, take a look. And then the scribes came. Now, who are the scribes? They're the ones who should know the Old Testament above all others. They're the ones who should know the prophecies of the Messiah. They're the ones who should know exactly who Jesus is. His identity should be clear to these men, for they've been reading the word of God year after year, time after time, dissecting it, and yes, they, 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 they miss the point. And they travel to Jerusalem, and what do they say about Jesus? Verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul. He's got, he's got the Beelzebub. This is, this is them saying he is, he is possessed by Satan himself. Look, we know this. The text says it. He is possessed by the prince of demons, and he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Right? This group of men should know who he is. They should be worshiping him. Instead, they say, not only is he nuts, he's Satan-possessed. But time after time, you'll see in Mark that people just don't get it. They're having a hard time recognizing who Jesus is. And so Jesus, through very reasonable logic, answers this accusation. And this is what he says in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand Verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but, it, but, is, but is coming to an end. But no one, this is how he speaks of Satan, he recognizes Satan is a strong man. Listen to what he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus' logic, how in the world, why in the world would Satan cast out Satan? This is a kingdom divided against itself. One author says that Jesus gives this parable that Satan is the strong man. Right? There's a recognizing that, 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 that Satan is real. There, there is this individual out there in this satanic realm, in the spiritual realm. And Jesus is the one breaking into Satan's house. This is Jesus in this moment saying, not only am I not possessed by Satan, but I am plundering Satan. I have bound Satan. And I am in his throne room, and I am taking it back. This author goes on and says, he goes into this realm to bind and plunder. Satan is indeed a strong man in this world. His house is a house of horrors filled with sin, sickness, death, demon possession, and all that is evil and wicked. His possessions are human beings. 
Enslaved by all these evils, demons are his agents who delight in carrying out his diabolical agenda. No one but Jesus can invade his realm and carry away his possessions. No one but Jesus is more powerful than this strong man. Scene one, he's on the mountain creating a new family. Scene two, his family thinks it's crazy. Scene three, you see the comic book punch? Boom, boom, boom. He's demon-possessed. Jesus' response to this religious family that should know who Jesus is, it should be Jesus' primary family. No, I'm not possessed by Satan, but there is a devil, there is an enemy, and I am stronger than him, and I have come to this earth, and I am plundering all that he thinks is his. My friends, what Jesus is saying is once you were part of a satanic family possessed by the devil himself, you were his possession. And Jesus has come and stolen your soul from the enemy's hands. Jesus is the stronger man than the strong man. It's beautiful. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 49, 24. The author of Isaiah asked the question, can the prey be taken from the mighty? Right, this, is, this is the lion running after its prey, capturing it in its jaws. The author in Isaiah 49, verse 24 continues, or the captives of the tyrant be rescued. Can the captives of the tyrant be rescued? The author's asking the question, you, you see this beast has its prey in its jaws and it's captured and it's enslaved and how can it be rescued? And then the Lord answers in verse 25, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued for I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Hallelujah. He has come to rescue mankind. He has come in the face of opposition that you and I would be brought to the mountain with God to spend time with him and to be forgiven of all of our sins. This is why then Jesus then mentions a kind of scary verse that has really kind of made a lot of Christians fearful over the years. He mentions the unpardonable sin. In his teaching, he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. All sins will be forgiven, he says. This is the forgiveness of all of our trespasses, all of our guilt, all of our shame, except for one particular sin, he says. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You look at that and you have to ask the question, what's the unpardonable sin? What is the sin in which we cannot be forgiven of ever? And, and he's not saying that you can commit this sin. In fact, in fact, I think it's J.C. Ryle. He says, um, there is a such thing as a sin which is never forgiven, but those who are troubled about it are most unlikely to have committed it. The sin is blaspheming Jesus. The sin is attributing the work of God to something other than God. In this case, the text makes it really clear they've attributed the work of Jesus to Satan himself. That's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is God saying if you want salvation, you have to attribute to God what is God's. If you were here this morning and you were saved, it is because of the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. You know, I love how God orchestrates things. Allie and I were in, uh, it's just so funny, like, and it, I'm so thankful I have a wife who serves Jesus with me. 
Because if not, we, we would make it. <laughs> like, she's a lot better than me. In fact, if you really want to know Jesus, get to know my wife. Right, babe? <laughs> she's, she's here. So, a lot of you don't even know who she is. That's her right there. She's got curly hair. She's the most beautiful girl in the room. We're in Hawaii. And one of the things about being in public ministry is you can travel all the way around the world and people still find you. So we're in Hawaii and there's a a guy, he comes to church here uh, from the Bay Area. He lives in the Bay Area and he comes to church here when he's here. He has a house here. He's here almost every weekend. He might even be in the room right now and I just don't. Is he here? Oh, there he is. And uh, there he is. (laughs) We were in Hawaii. Now we're here. You're welcome. So, anyways, James is in Hawaii, and his wife, he's there for a wedding, and his wife brought two friends uh, with her to Hawaii. And so we hooked up going to lunch, and, and they pull up, and, you know, I was expecting James and his wife. I wasn't expecting these other gals. And they get out of the car, and I am introduced to them. I say, hey, my name's Jesse. And one of them just comes, and she just squeezes me. She says, I know exactly who you are. And I'm so thankful for your messages. I'm so thankful for your sermons. I watch online, and the other girl said the same thing. I watch online. I've been to the church several times. I wish we could go to your church, but we live in the Bay Area, and so we tune in online. And here's the amazing thing about their story. A little later, we're standing in line, and Kat, James' wife, tells me, hey, just so you know, these two gals, they weren't Christians, and they were in a relationship together. They have since met Jesus. They have separated, and now they're on the new path of trying to figure out what does it look like to worship Jesus. And so here I am in Hawaii experiencing the miraculousness of how Jesus saves sinners, how Jesus brings us into the family of God, takes us to the top of the hill, and then encourages us by letting us know you can expect that people are going to attribute certain miracles like this to Satan himself, and your family's not going to totally get it, but don't commit the unforgivable sin of attributing such miracles to anything other than Christ. I didn't do it. My wife didn't do it. James didn't do it. Jesus did it. And he wants to do that with you this morning. He wants to free you from your sin, free you from your guilt, bring you to the mountain of God that you'd be part of the family of God. Do not pervert this, but make it clear. Jesus has brought these men to the mountain for a purpose. It isn't just that they would sit there. It isn't that they would stand on the sidelines. It's that they would then be used to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ out in a dark world that needs it. My pastor friend in Reading said to me that he feels in our day and age, that evangelism is basically dead. The United States of America, in the name of, he says, in the name of discipleship. I love discipleship. I think discipleship is important. He shared the sad statistic that in our network of churches, 1.2 conversions a year. 1.2 people saved every year. in hundreds of churches across America. Shouldn't that sadden you? Shouldn't that shake you to your core? Shouldn't that also empower you? 
Shouldn't that strengthen you and encourage you? That it's time, my friends, for us to proclaim the goodness of Christ to those who are lost. It's time for us to go into the world, to go to downtown Truckee, to go to our bankers, to go to our grocery clerks, to go to every corner we possibly can around this area and tell people there is a Christ who loves them, desires them, wants to heal them. May that not be said of our church, 1.2 conversions? Do you think Jesus has given you the word of God that you could just sit on the hill and sit there and be okay with that? No, once Jesus goes and ascends to the hill, there's always a descending to the hill, back to the mission of Christ, back to the family that will call you crazy, and back to those weird religious zealots who've got it all wrong. They need conversion as well. Let's go get those Mormons. Let's go get the Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's go share with them that they have attributed the work of God to some other demon and they are to turn from that, repent from that, and turn to the only one who has true power and love, and that is Jesus Christ. And what's amazing, again, as you look at these men, you don't need to have any kind of greatness about you, do you? Who would have thought that little toe-headed kid held back in first grade put into a little special education system, would be standing here today proclaiming the goodness of God. This is the business that Jesus is in. And then we conclude with scene four. Scene one, the mountain. Scene two, the family. Scene three, the religious. Scene four, back to the family. Remember I said it's kind of written like a comic book. Mark is layered very beautifully. It's a simple book, but there is complexity to it. In fact, it was once thought in the early church age that Mark was a simple gospel and that Mark was an uneducated kind of not, not a very smart guy. This is, this is kind of a book for dummies, if you will, the gospel for dummies, if you will. It wasn't until later when they started to study the original language, they realized actually, actually the work that Mark has placed in here is, is some of the, uh, of the highest quality of the highest literature. Scene one, he's on the mountain. That is the top of this sandwich, if you will. Think of it like a sandwich. Scene one, establishing a new family. That's the top. Scene two, the inside of the sandwich, the family that should be his family, they think he's crazy. Scene three, still inside the sandwich, the religious, right? Bad meat in the middle of that sandwich. Scene four, Jesus will say who is truly his family. That's the bottom of the sandwich, squeezed up in there, the good, the ugly, and the good. It's if Jesus, what he does, what Mark is doing is he's saying, okay, we're going to start in scene one, and I'm going to show you scene two, scene three, and then scene four is actually going to tie back to scene one. Look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. Remember? Said the title could be insiders, outsiders. Here they are. They're standing outside, and they sent to him. They called him, for the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Jesus your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, right? It's back to that seizing. They, they want to control you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at all those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. All of this to point to this reality Jesus has ascended from heaven. 
He has proclaimed the good news of his salvation. To the masses and the crowds, he has prayed. He has selected these 12 men to change the world. He then has ascended back to the mountain. He is pouring into them. He is praying with them. He then descends. He gets the rejection from his family, the rejection from the church. And then he makes the proclamation. Oh, by the way, if you do my will, if you live for me, you're part of this family too. Jesus is making quite a clear statement that the spiritual ties that tie us together are stronger than the religious ties and much stronger than even our blood ties. How beautiful is it that if you have felt in this day and in this age that you don't fit in with your family and you don't fit in with the culture, that you, like this ragtag bunch of men, have a family in Christ. You have been purchased and you have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. I actually, as I was studying, came across a really neat picture of C.S. Lewis talking about his conversion. Uh, we were talking about C.S. Lewis just outside. I can't remember if it was because of this or I don't remember, but C.S. Lewis, in my opinion, I just, you, you know, I, every Christian adopts C.S. Lewis as their own. doesn't matter what denomination you're part of. He's part of every denomination. Everybody thinks C.S. Lewis is theirs, right? And his literature, I think, is, I, I, I just, man, one of the very first books that I ever read in training was Mere Christianity. Uh, it's just, I think it's top 10 book every Christian should read. And C.S. Lewis, if you remember, before writing Mere Christianity, he was an atheist. This is a guy who did not believe God, did not believe in God. And C.S. Lewis wrote a picture, he literally calls it a picture, of what his conversion was like into this family of God. Let's listen to him. You got to picture me all alone in that room, his room. He says, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. This is C.S. Lewis saying, I didn't want to meet Jesus, but he kept pursuing me. He goes on. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in, and I admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Man. Jesus wants to take us to the mountain. And he wants to spend time with us. But he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to come down. And he wants you to proclaim this gospel of salvation for sinners. That more people would come be a part of this family of God. In order for others to come to the mountain, we have to step into the realm. We have to step down. 
introduce people to Jesus. And then we have the great privilege of walking them back to the top of the mountain to be with Jesus. Let me close with a few questions. One, are you willing to be used by Jesus? Are you willing to follow him in such a radical way that you will no longer be silent with this beautiful message that Christ has? Let me ask you another question. Are you in this family? Are you in the inside? Or do you feel dejected and on the outside? I want to make it really clear that if you feel like you're on the outside of God's family, the only thing you need to do to be in God's family is to admit you need a family. To humble yourself and say, Jesus, it's really this simple. Jesus, I want to be in a relationship with you. And I admit that I have sin and I need to be forgiven. And I know that you can forgive me. And right now you may be in your seat, just like C.S. Lewis. You hear Jesus, he's just not going to leave you alone. And you think by leaving here, you think by leaving this building, he's going to leave you alone? He's going to hunt you down. And he's going to call you because he desires you. That's what this, it says right here. He called those whom he desired. If you're hearing his voice, it's because he desires you. Lay it down. Quit fighting him. Come to him. Give your life to him. Let's pray. Lord, as you said just a few verses previously in chapter 2, that you came not for those who are well, for those who are well do not need a physician, but you came for the sick. You came for the sinner. And I just want to say publicly to my family here how thankful I am that you brought me to the top of your mountain and you saved me. I pray that each one of us who knows that reality would say the same prayer. Thank you for saving me. And I pray, Lord, for those who are listening, whether it is online or whether it's in this room, Lord, they, they have not yet given their life to you. I pray, Lord, right now, they would do so. They would not fight, but they would surrender. And then lastly, I pray for those who are called by your name, those who are your sheep, that all of us would be empowered and take, up, take upon ourselves the mantle of evangelist and to share our faith with all who will listen, all who will hear. We trust you for that work, Lord, in Jesus' name. The church said, amen. Would you guys stand with us while we sing the last couple songs in closing?